Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Because a lot of people would ask me, like, oh, what stories are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, I, I'm not doing anything yet because I have to hire people. I have to build a team. Once we have the team, then we'll be able to really do stuff, but really creating a lot of systems from scratch. Sometimes if you're lucky, you get hired to run a big, important journalism project that has the potential to have a huge impact on the communities you cover. But before you can get to covering those big, important stories, you have to put structures in place and hire the people to man them. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Priska Neely is an award-winning public radio journalist and the managing editor of Gulf States Newsroom, a collaborative effort to better serve the public media audience while making a multimedia push to reach new, diverse groups throughout the Gulf region. Welcome to the podcast, Priska. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me a, a little bit about your background. You know, what was your journalist journey? How did you become a public media journalist? Well, I am actually one of those people who's wanted to be a journalist since childhood. My parents tell me that I used to kind of interview relatives with an imaginary microphone when I was five and had just kind of always been interested in that. I think it was because of my older brother. I had a brother who was going to college when I was born and he was majoring in journalism and we were really close and he would come and he would like pick me up and take me. My parents told me that when I was like two, he picked me up and took me to campus and, you know, like took me to the newspaper room. And, you know, I think I just really kind of imprinted on him because he was really passionate about telling stories. And so I went to a middle school where they had a really great magnet program, like a communications magnet program. I always say like middle school was the most formative part of my education, even now. I always wanted to be a journalist. Public radio came a little bit later. I, I thought that I was going to be on TV, but when, when I was in college, I was just kind of too intimidated by the, the other people in my program and was like, whoa, this seems really cutthroat. I don't know if I can do this. And I started listening to, I think, I think it was This American Life that was kind of my gateway. And I was like, oh, wow, this approach, this storytelling, this, you know, really character driven kind of long form stuff that that was my gateway into really radio, thinking about public radio. I've always been interested in sound and in music. I've been singing since forever and actually made a radio show in that middle school program that I was in. So I'd always been thinking about it, but I didn't um, find public radio until the end of college and just did a bunch of different internships until I ended up interning at NPR and was a producer and eventually moved out to LA and reported at, at KPCC in Los Angeles, worked at Reveal at the Center for Investigative Reporting. And now I'm in this leadership role and in, in the Gulf States based in Birmingham. So what type of stories were you doing at KPCC and, and Reveal? At KPCC, I had a couple of different reporting roles during my time there, but the early childhood reporting position was kind of the the big one for me. I was covering issues related to children zero to five and the people who care for them. And it was interesting for me because my mom, she was actually an early educator and I grew up in the home daycare that she ran in our house. And so kind of gravitated to that beat and was doing a lot of stories about you know, curriculum and childcare issues and, and that in Los Angeles and in California, there was a huge, huge conversation about 
access and equity when I was there. But I ended up, the story that kind of took over my life was about Black infant mortality. And I was at a, a conference just when I had first come onto that beat, and I heard the statistic that Black babies are twice as likely as white babies to die in their first year of life. And just was shocked by that as a Black woman. That was my first time hearing that statistic. And when I heard that prematurity was one of the driving causes, I realized that my own family was sort of wrapped up in that because I have a sister who lost two babies who were born premature. And my other sister had my nephew premature. He's great. He's almost 14 now, which is like mind blowing and he's amazing. But they didn't know. They didn't know about that statistic. They didn't know that their personal experiences were wrapped up in this bigger national trend that is a result of of racism, of, you know, the experience of being a Black woman and how that in America and how that plays out in your health outcomes. They had no idea. And that was kind of one of the driving questions that I had in the reporting that I did on that topic was like, does the community that this impacts even realize that they're part of this? And so I ended up doing a big series about this issue in LA and also looking at at it in a couple of other states and kind of solutions. And that was in... 2017 was when I I started looking into that. And in 2021, like I still get asked to moderate panels about this topic. Like the stories that I did are still out there percolating. And I never, never really thought that it would be such a big deal. When I went to Reveal, I also, one of the one of the hours that I produced there was called Reproducing Racism. And it was about that issue as well and looking at birth outcomes and the racial disparities there and how that's really linked to medical racism and um, also just, you know, interpersonal racism, the experience of being a black woman in America. Did you find that your reporting affected any change that you could see? It definitely started a conversation in L.A. County. At the time that I started doing my reporting, there was a new head of the Department of Public Health in L.A. County, and she was really pushing, she'd come from another state and, and was really horrified by the statistics in, in LA and wanted to make that a priority. So I think my reporting was able to kind of keep that from falling to the back burner and was able to kind of galvanize a lot of the groups there because, you know, this is not a new statistic in any way. And that was really one of the driving points. Usually in investigative journalism or in high impact thing, you're like uncovering something new. But the point that I was really making was that this is a decades old statistic. Why is it so persistent? Why have we not closed this gap? And what I heard from a lot of the groups in California was that my reporting, you know, helped them to kind of make that case a little bit better and keep it top of mind for for politicians. There was a bill that, and I know I'm not going to remember the details of this, but there was some legislation that was proposed after the stories that I did that I don't know if it was a direct impact, but people told me that it was really, it was really something that helped to shed light on this issue and substantiate it, you know, as a major problem that was linked to a lot of other problems, something that was really um, a through line of the reporting that I did on early childhood issues was that everything is connected. You know, we think about these little ones in our community and may not think about them, may not think about how this is connected to adulthood, how it's connected to health overall, how it's connected to education and all of these things, like those first years of life are so key. So yeah, and I think, you know, I kind of just became a person who could, who could talk about these issues in a way that, that seemed to resonate. And I think it was 
in part because of the the family connection that I had and the fact that I kind of put that out there. Like this is not something that just happens to people. Like it's it's a real thing. You know, it's I think sometimes we can just kind of other things. It's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, especially the discussion over the last couple of years about this idea of systematic racism and where you have these stories that are kind of told that shed light on why there are certain conditions. Like I'm thinking of the the redlining story that they did down in Richmond, Virginia, where they, you know, they, they were able to reveal through investigation that various sections of the city were, you know, redlined, you know, African-American families, black families couldn't purchase homes in these communities. And quite often those homes were close to, you know, chemical plants or, you know, dumps or whatever, less desirable areas of the city. And that had, you know, impacts on a lot of different things, not the least of which is health. You know, I find it so amazing when you talk about people it was affecting, uh, the black community, uh, their children are dying and they're not necessarily seeing this as a, I'm sure that, you know, on a personal level, they saw it as a problem. But as a larger example of the systematic racism. I know that with COVID, there's been quite a lot of talk about, you know, why the black population is being affected in greater numbers. And, and much of it has to do with the access to health care and sort of uh, awareness of things like this. It's, it's kind of fascinating. As you said, everything's kind of ties together. Yeah. In the beginning of the pandemic, when everyone was talking about comorbidities, and I was like, oh, my God, please stop saying stop saying that word. Like, well, no one knows what that means. It's just like, you know, other health things that make you more susceptible to COVID that are also linked to all of these pre-existing inequities. Like, that's kind of what I'd been talking about for a long time with my reporting is like, yeah, we're seeing these gaps now exacerbated with COVID, but these things were here before. Like, you know, why do certain communities have higher rates of asthma? Why do certain communities have higher rates of diabetes? So is any of this type of reporting something that sort of attracted you to your new job at, at Gulf States? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, kind of in the in the background of everything that I talked about, I've always been interested in leadership and really I've always been a mentor and a kind of a trainer in the newsrooms that I've been in and have wanted to be able to be in a position to help other people do their best work and to, you know, kind of bring up new reporters and have a say in in shaping the mission. And this was a really unique opportunity to do that in a part of the country that often doesn't get as much attention on the national stage. Both of my parents are from the South, actually not not from states that are in uh, this collaboration, but my mom's from Texas and my dad's from North Carolina. And I'd always talked about wanting to come to the South to do reporting, to do journalism, just because I'm from Maryland. I went to school in New York. I worked in LA, like these places where you get a lot of news, you get more coverage. And there's a certain way that people think about public radio also in those places, you know, like, oh, I love KPCC. I love WNYC. I love my, you know, and <laughs> and I, I was just interested in the challenge of being a journalist somewhere where that wasn't the case, where you have more potential to reach new audiences and also to get more stories on from this part of the country nationally. So that's that's really the whole mission of the Gulf States newsroom. How are you accomplishing that mission? You know, how many reporters are you going to bring on board and, and what is going to what types of stories are you going to write about? Yeah. So the way that this works is the Gulf States newsroom is a collaboration between three main 
partner stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. So I'm based in Alabama and Birmingham. So WBHM is the lead station, the station where I'm based. We're working with WWNO in New Orleans and with Mississippi Public Broadcasting, which is based in Jackson. And we're all working together. These are all really small, small but mighty newsrooms. We're all working together to plan out regional coverage. You know, these states and these cities have a lot of shared issues when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to criminal justice, when it comes to economic issues. And so those are the first three coverage areas that we've had reporters in. So we have three reporters that we've brought on so far that are based at each of the stations. We have a healthcare reporter based in New Orleans, criminal justice reporter based in Jackson, and reporter covering wealth and poverty will be based in Birmingham. But they're all going to be looking at stories and reporting stories across the three states and really framing the stories in a way that they're relevant and they can air on all three of the stations and run on all of the station websites. In addition to that, in addition to bringing on adding reporting power into the region, we're also just working with the with the local reporters to bring in stories that can air on the other stations and just to share resources because the newsrooms are so small. So we've started with me and three reporters and over the next 6 months or so we're going to be adding to that team, adding a couple more editors and reporters to that team. So it's the stations are excited because you know they have another editor in the house to work with. They have more reporters and they can assign stories. There, there hadn't been anyone at these, station, at these stations that was focused on criminal justice. There are some health reporters, but we're kind of just able to really focus on those beats. The, the reporters that I've hired to cover the region are really able to just focus on their beats. And as they're getting started, they're talking to lots of people and really developing mission statements to kind of to ground their coverage and to figure out some issues that they can really own so they can make an impact. Are you seeing that these stories would be strictly for the uh, the three stations, or is this something that stories that may be able to make their way onto other NPR stations? The three partner stations are what we're starting with, but we we also have had conversations, and in the initial visioning of this, it's bringing in some of the other smaller stations in the states as well that we would share content with them eventually, and also down the road, also having non-public media partners, you know, getting our our stories distributed in other ways. You know, I'll just say that I have really been in startup mode for the past four months, you know, really just starting something from scratch. This is a new thing. These stations had not worked together before. I mean, they're in three different states. You know, it's doing something regionally is new and different. So a lot of what I've been doing has been a hiring, but also just systems development. Like, how are we going to share content? What are the stories that impact all of the states and that makes sense to share. So it's really just been startup mode. This week, my first reporter, the healthcare reporter that I hired had her first story on, and I can talk more about that if you want. And it was, sure. it was very exciting. Before we get to that, though, why was it important to view this as a startup as opposed to this is just, you know, I'm in a radio station and we're just sort of sharing content. What did putting yourself in that mindset help you to do? Hmm. I don't know that that's actually, I don't know that I was thinking that way before I started the job. I think I realized that, <laughs> you know, a month in, I was like, oh, this is, this is like a startup. I'm hiring. I'm starting something completely from scratch, you know, during a pandemic. 
mind you, very strange time to be <laughs> hiring people and having them move. And, you know, so, I mean, I think I got into that mindset a little farther in like, oh, I have to come up with systems for sharing this. Every station uses different software and they have different processes. They have different meetings. They have different title. They have, you know, and it's like everything kind of really understanding the way that everyone was doing things and then figuring out, okay, how can we work together in a way that is helpful and not just confusing and complicated. Because <laughs> a lot of people would, would ask me like, oh, what stories are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, I, I'm not doing anything yet because I have to hire people. I have to build a team. Once we have the team, then we'll be able to really do stuff. But it's really creating a lot of systems from scratch. Okay. Now you've got your first story out. Tell me about that. Yeah. So we hired three reporters, healthcare, criminal justice, and wealth and poverty. Our healthcare reporter started first and um, really just got started right away. And it was exciting to see through this first story, really the kind of the mission of this whole collaboration fulfilled. So her name is Shalina Chetlani, and she's based in New Orleans and NPR has just started this new stations investigations team. So we got a call from them saying that they were looking at some data and they were analyzing where vaccination sites are placed in some major cities and looking for disparities in access by race. So kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, that the ways that systemic racism has really drawn lines and and what were the pre-existing things? This is another story where the you, know, you have these pre-existing issues. So her story looked at part of Baton Rouge, the northern part of Baton Rouge, where there aren't many medical facilities, where there aren't many pharmacies, grocery stores, all the places where vaccination sites go, those places weren't there. So the NPR data showed that, you know, three-fourths of the sites that people had access to in the city were in the south part of Baton Rouge and in mostly white areas. So she was able to go there and, you know, talk to some some people and community leaders in the north part of the city who talked about, you know, those pre-existing issues and the fact that, you know, this is life for them. And now it's just playing out with the vaccine rollout. Now we're seeing that inequity with the vaccine rollout. So her story aired across all the stations in our collaboration, but she was also part of an NPR roundtable with another station reporter who was looking at this in, in other states and is going to have a version of the story that we did locally, regionally on NPR nationally too. So it's kind of fulfilling, checking all those boxes of shared content for across our three states, but also getting issues from this region on nationally. So you seem to describe a few things that worked really well with this first story. What are you hoping to replicate going forward? And, and what other things do you hope to do with the other reporters that you've got going on? Yeah, so the other reporters are starting and I'm just giving them opportunity to really dig in and talk to lots of people, kind of giving people that on ramp. Sometimes as a reporter, you just start and you have to file right away. But I've had to tell my reporters, like, don't don't do that. Like, don't try to do a story this week, you know, just start, settle in, figure out what you want to figure out what you want to do. Talk to a lot of people, figure out what are the issues in this region that we really should, should be staying on top of. And then let's make a plan. Let's, let's have a guiding light. Let's have a mission statement to guide our coverage. 
you know, all of our stories, the, the goal is to have them make sense and make sense to air across all three stations to frame them in a way that is relevant to audiences in all three states and to get them on nationally when, when that is an option too. So it's an exciting, exciting opportunity to be able to, to talk to the Southern Bureau chief at NPR and to talk to other NPR editors in those topic areas of healthcare and criminal justice so that we can, we can be getting more stories from this region on. You know, another part of the mission of all of this is that, you know, there are a lot of local papers in these states that are shrinking, that are closing, you know, reporters are taking buyouts. And so it's exciting to be able to hire reporters and editors in this region, add reporting power into this region and cover some of these issues. I've talked to some local reporters and people who have covered criminal justice in this area. And it's rather than being like, oh, there's competition in town. It's like, oh, wow, cool. You know, like there's so many stories here. So good, (laughs) good that other people are going to be here because like it always felt like too much, you know, like there was so much that you could be missing out on. So who do you see as, your, as the audience that you're you're targeting these stories for? Right now and still in startup mode, <laughs> but, it, you know, so it's the existing audiences. But I think a lot about who do we want to reach? We're in three cities that are majority black, like the, the cities that the stations are based in, Birmingham, Jackson, and New Orleans. And I'm hopeful that we can, as we build the team, really work in engagement as part of the reporting process and as part of what we do. I mean, that's something that I did and that I was really passionate about in my reporting is doing the stories, but doing a big series, but having events and getting the people who are directly affected to make sure they hear the story, to make sure that they are the ones coming to the event, to do strategic outreach, to really make sure that the people this is about, the people who need the information in the stories, they are actually hearing it if they are not part of the public radio audience already. That's definitely a goal of mine is to expand the listening audience. And we also have huge rural communities in these areas. So something else on my mind is, you know, how do we reach people who are accessing the news in other, in other ways who may not be listening to radio, may not, may not be streaming the app? How can we explore text options? And a lot of that I, I don't know yet because I am in startup mode just like doing my best to hire people and get stories out in the beginning. But those are those are big things that are on my mind because I don't want it to just be because I, I do want the stories to be reaching a wider audience. You're in the putting the, the plates on the stick phase and starting them to spin. You're not at the keeping them spinning and, and doing yeah. more things. Where would you like to be in a year with this? Mm. Or two years, which whichever you think is better, or a hundred years. <laughs> let's keep it. Let's keep it short. One um, or two years. <laughs> so in the year twenty thirty five, I hope to. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, in a year, I hope to be done with with the hiring and to have a team that is used to working together and sharing ideas. You know, like when I say startup mode, I mean a lot of. <laughs> it's startup within public radio, right? So everyone has ways that they're used to doing things. You have to kind of 
introduce all these new things, you know, new Slack channels, you know, how do you get people who are focused on their newsroom, which is their priority, but to think in a regional way of like, oh, how can we share this story? Oh, are reporters spotting something that's just like a health, kind of a breaking news story that's true across the region? Okay, let's, let's share that across all three stations. Like it's, it's a very different process. So I want to normalize and standardize all those things, get people to think, oh, I'm doing this story about X, but that's actually true in all the states. So let me talk to Prisca about that, you know, just kind of getting used to normalizing all of those things so that we can share all of our content more easily and getting things online across three stations is a challenge too. So just having process for that and really starting to look at all of those things, all those things that I talked about more in the long term, you know, thinking about engagement, starting to do, explore different options for dis- distribution. I want to have everything going for just the hiring and processes so I can start to kind of dream bigger and do that. And, you know, doing investigative high impact projects, that's also part of the, the goal here. So I want to as these reporters are really digging in on their beats, they're going to start hearing hearing things. There's so many stories here, and we hope to be able to do some some big stories that have the have the power to impact systems and do some accountability projects. Yeah, I'm going to go back to something that you you mentioned very early on, which is one of the reasons you took this job is you liked mentoring people. What do you like about mentoring? How do you mentor? You know, it's weird not being in a physical newsroom right now because I I really loved being in a newsroom and like seeing what was going on everywhere and, you know, seeing the new intern start and see that person like sent out for an assignment with no clear direction and like swinging over to them by the elevator and be like, are you okay? Do you understand what you're doing? Do you need like, let's talk for five minutes before you go out, like, like catching people helping them, intercepting and supporting people. I I would do stuff like that all the time or seeing ways to improve with training. Like that's something that I'm really passionate about. And especially when we talk about, you know, diversifying journalism, I think training is such a big part of that and making sure you have systems for onboarding people from the beginning. So I was always creating some type of manual or checklist. Like when you start, you need to do this X, Y, Z. This is what this means. This is what this word means. This is what a spot is. This is what a correspondence cut is. You know, like this is the lingo that we use here. That's probably different from something that you heard elsewhere. I just have always really been into kind of systematizing things that way. So now that I'm hiring reporters, I'm actually very passionate about onboarding. (laughs) And trying to make sure that people are um, supported, especially because we're starting in this remote world. And even if we weren't, you know, working from home, we would still be in different states because of the the nature of this collaboration. So I've had a a lot of success, I think, in making (laughs) these onboarding plans. I think in who I am as a person, when something has happened to me, when I haven't felt completely supported or clear in starting a job, I'm like always keeping notes, like, how can I change this in the future? How can I prevent someone else from being in this? You know, how, how can I make this clear for someone else in the future? And I, I have kept this like Google Doc called Notes to My Future Manager Self since like, I don't know, I think I kept it for 11 years before I was actually a manager. <laughs> so I'm kind of just always thinking in that way of how to support people. So in my onboarding process, I kind of like took all of that and was finally like, wow, I have people to 
try this out on. It's going well so far. So I hope I hope that continues. You've got people to experiment on your theories. I mean, people as they're going through the ranks and encountering different types of managers, they don't always remember those lessons. And there's certainly plenty of managers you know, that you encounter that have clearly not learned anything about how to manage people. Did you have a, have a people who were mentoring you that uh, you took things away from? Yes, yes. And I, I kind of sought out a lot of opportunities to both learn from people as mentors, but also just to have trainings. I think I did when I was starting out as, you know, I'd just gotten hired at NPR and I did this like lead from where you are program. And the person who led that program is still a mentor of mine. She's someone who I who I keep in touch with and, you know, who I update like, hey, I actually got this job now. And she's, you know, so proud. And I email her when I need help or a pep talk. I have a lot of people that I call for pep talks. It's really essential. But I just think about it a lot. I, I've always thought about it a lot. Like, what's happening right now? What are the factors? Because I think in making that transition to leadership, you know, you realize all the the meetings all the bureaucracy <laughs> that managers to deal with. I've always known that there were other things. I've always known that it was a hard thing to do, but I, I wanted to do it because I really wanted to help other people do their best work. And I wanted to, yeah, just, just support people and train, set expectations. I don't know. I think they're just a lot of like sink or swim environments. And I, I'm just like, what could happen differently if we were all on the same page from the beginning? Yeah. It's nice to have somebody who seems to have a sense of where you're going and can lead you, but also, you know, allow you to, to grow and do your, your own thing. So when I, I used to work at Federal News Radio in Washington, D.C., and I remember doing a series about federal managers. We covered the federal government and, and people nominated their managers to receive these awards. And I interviewed all these different managers, government managers, and they all said pretty much the same thing in a really smart way, which was that their their main job was to give their employees the tools they needed to succeed and to get out of their way, not give them things that were going to uh, stop them from succeeding, which seems very obvious. And when when you run into a manager with that uh, that attitude, you know, that's, that's a great thing. Anyway, Prisco, this has been a great conversation. <laughs> Thanks for this little detour about, about management and mentoring. I, I think it's worthwhile sometimes to talk about those things especially when you're somebody like you who's in, in a startup mode. And I would imagine it's it's exciting and scary. And, and also you probably feel privileged to have this opportunity. Yes. I mean, especially, especially right now, the industry has changed so much. And to be doing something new in journalism in this region that just aligns with so many of my goals is really, yeah, it's a really special opportunity. If, you know, if I had to do it over again, if I had the power to rewrite the script, I would like there to not be a pandemic during this time you and me both <laughs> i think we can both agree on that it's just so weird not to be able to like go meet my report you know i i wanted to go spend time physically at all the stations before starting and yeah <laughs> what lux what luxury <laughs> but really the least the least of, of anyone's problems really so we're, we're still going to be able to do good work a little differently than imagined but yeah Thanks to our wonderful technology where, like now, we can talk to each other miles away via Zoom. Prisca, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. This has been a great conversation. I wish you luck with Gulf States Newsroom. Thank you. Thanks so much. 
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.